0: This podcast was recorded in a Zoom meeting with the Hartford Street Zen Center Sangha. Please visit HSZC.org for information about how to join our online programs or to make a contribution. We depend on the generosity of our members and supporters, especially during this challenging time. Thank you. Uh,
1: Welcome, everyone. It is wonderful to be back uh, at Hartford Street in spirit, and uh, it's great to see that there are some people uh, still ringing bells and in residence there. Um, I don't know how it's been for you, but for me, this has been a a remarkable opportunity this past year, Um, uh, despite all of the confusion and grief and uh, antagonism and anxiety. Uh, I've had an opportunity to um, take many uh, walks uh, and uh, spend time with friends online and to some degree in person and uh, I feel a great deal of gratitude. I think that Buddhism And our practice has made many things possible to me um, that may not have occurred to me or may not have been available to me. Um, And one of my discoveries um, in this past year has been um, uh, I've had some time to uh, follow, examine, and study a bit of our founder uh, Shunryu Shin, Suzuki's um, record, you know, I'm sure almost almost for, for certain most of you have had a chance to spend many, uh, many occasions with Zen Mind Beginner's Mind, or not always so, but, uh, you know, from 1960 five or so to 1970, 71, there's a a really a vast trove of his lectures that are uh, available on shunriusuzuki.com, which is part of, I think the Cuke website and David Chadwick's work uh, to um, uh, save for us all, Uh, The words of somebody who understood, not just with his mind, but with his body and with his life, the practice that we're all trying to come to uh, grips with and develop our relationship and appreciation of. So 50 years ago, just 50 years ago, um, Suzuki gave a talk at Tassahara. This was in the midst of a sashin. And it was just prior to the ordination ceremony for uh, Reb Anderson and Paul Disco. Uh, Reb, of course, as you know, is um, Mio's teacher and transmitter. And so we're all, these are, these are people we're connected to. And as I have aged and I've gotten to know people both to appreciate and to lose, Uh, over the years, um, I feel more and more the connections. Anyway, um, the title of uh, Suzuki's talk on that occasion, which was an ordination uh, or a a, a run-up to the ordination was was, uh, titled, Observation of the Precepts and the Practice of Zazen is same thing. Now there will be times in the course of this talk, which I will in a sense be quoting Suzuki. And I will use his language in the way that he used, which may sound a little affected, but I wanna make it clear that these are not just me. Uh, this is coming directly from our, uh, the man who set this all in motion. So anyway, he starts off, observation of the precepts and, and practice of zazen is the same thing. Just like our everyday practice in zazen is the same thing. So this is something that I think occurs to you, has certainly occurred to me over time. To begin to see, to begin to sense, to begin to appreciate how our, uh, uh, our sitting experience is like is like our daily experience i think is a is a is a kind of revelation that helps make us a buddhist for life and when you begin to see your life through your sitting experience you also get a, a, you also develop other other perspectives on on zazen you know zazen is a magnification it's a repetition It's an understanding and it's a confusion all wrapped up in a physical form. When Paul Disco in his Shusho ceremony was asked, what is Zazen? His response was, I don't know what Zazen is, but it includes everything. So thinking about Zazen is something that I, I've had plenty of time to do. Zazen is thinking about Zazen, and Zazen is beyond thinking about Zazen. So Zazen gives us a form to focus on while we experience our life in some detail, and for many of us, more detail than we can stand. At any rate, Zazen is metabolizing your life and as we all know, just to be you is, can be exhausting. So to be with ourselves, whether it's in sashin or sitting or just coming back to it, is for everyone a continuing challenge. But I think eventually we begin to detect a fresh relationship and a renewed sense of appreciation of zazen. When we first begin, you know, I would say our spiritual ambition will drive us along for quite a ways. This could go on for years. But eventually, I think a new relationship with sitting, where it becomes more our own, and not just something aspirational. So it develops a sense of our own sitting and our own appreciation of sitting, which is very completely personal. And that becomes, as it always has been, but it was hard to recognize perhaps early on, is a refuge. So we we begin to develop a capacity to sit through and to stay with things, which is both a physical and emotional stamina. And what is the fresh relationship? Uh, one way of describing it is kind of a migration from achievement to acceptance. This is also an expansion of our sense of time, thinking minute to minute, expanding to month to month, to year, to decade. And we begin to notice beyond our fascination with ourselves, qualities in others, which attract and satisfy us, and in some ways become more the point. We become somewhat less absorbed in our own experience. And things that are built in, the repetition, the physical challenge, etc., can become a comfort rather than a burden and we begin to discover how our own energy relates to others and how our own rhythm, whether it's our speech, our walking, our energy, our desire to be heard or contribute can be moderated to allow us to relate more easily and completely with others. You know, Zazen, for all the time we spend at it, it's actually remarkable how little time we spend discussing it. So recently on a sitting session that I have with people, uh, we were just considering the kinds of forms that we encounter while sitting. So We can't escape the challenges that sitting uh, presents us with. And so the the form of posture is one that's been referred to, of course. And we are actually, you know, when Mel Weitzman was asked at some point recently in the last year or two, how's your sitting going? He says, well, I'm still, I'm still monitoring myself. I'm still noticing ways in which I need to tune it up. is sort of the implication, those weren't his words. So while we're attending to um, our sitting, we're noticing a lot, you know, how's our back? How is our neck? How is our shoulders? How is our hara? What's happening with our mudra? That's just posture. How about our breathing? How is that feeling? Shallow or deep, anxious or not? Breathing out or breathing in? There's an expression in enlightenment can be found at the end of your exhale. It was many years before I realized that, or perhaps recalled something that Suzuki said early on. He said, uh, if you're mostly noticing or focused on your inhale, you can quite easily become angry the implication here is that noticing or emphasizing your exhale, your letting go is what creates space. And so now when I'm counting, also for me, a recent discovery, I, I count on the exhale. And I also discovered that for me, counting twice is helpful in terms of just my own sense of continuity. For me, I was rarely ever able to count to 10, but if I count one and then one, two and then two, I can still lose track, but not quite so easily. And um, there were many years where I wasn't that interested in counting. But that lack of interest allowed me to be much less grounded. And there some virtues to that, but there's some loss. So the quality of our breath, whether we're holding, whether we're exhaling completely, endless things to consider. And then how about our thoughts? Are we carried away? Do we notice that we're carried away? One thing that seems very clear is that when we are attending to our body, to our breath, to our sight, to the sounds of the street or the birds, we're in the present. And when we are attending to our mind, we're almost always in the past or the future. So Zazen is practicing life in the present. and seeing the cost of the lives that we have spent in regret or in speculation. And what else about our attitude have we been involved in? Are we we working here out of a sense of duty or investment? Are we expecting a return on our investment Are we referencing comfort, or is it just a retreat from our daily bouts of anxiety? And what can we learn from our constant urge to twist, refine, distract, repeat, or improve our state of mind? How do we work with our evaluations? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Does it matter? Are we comfortable? For years, I used to reference comfort. That's, that's good sitting, I'm comfortable. Maybe not the whole story. A story that I like to tell, which I'm sure I've told to some of you before, but a great friend and an admirable student uh, for many years um, asked uh, Katagiri one time or actually confessed to Katagiri how terrible his sitting practice was. Katagiri said, bad zazen is pretty good. So we can take heart. And Suzuki goes on as he has many times and said, you know, sitting enables to us eventually to accept things as they are. For me, one of the most interesting things that I've discovered in his current uh, series of talks, to work on something may be easy. To not work on something may be rather difficult. So sitting is a big mystery. And it will continue to be a big mystery as long as we see it that way. But then again, our relationship to our lives is pretty mysterious and they are related. At least with Zazen, we begin with a sense of investigation and a sense of form. We tend to identify with and be involved and very much involved with our thoughts. And though Zazen doesn't deny this, it encourages us to relate directly to something a lot less speedy, like our bodies, and to view our thoughts as what they are, just thoughts. So in a way, we practice in order to discover how much we need to practice. That may not sound like good news, but I find it encouraging. So returning to the topic of precepts, which is really was the focus of Suzuki's talk on this occasion. um, He explains that when you first encounter precepts, they may seem like rules. But precepts from Buddha's perspective are just our life. But it takes time to see this. Suzuki, there is nothing without rules. But before we become familiar with our true nature, we may think of the precepts are rules, which have nothing to do with us. But living with others in a practice community we behave like Zen students. So to become a disciple of Buddha is to receive the precepts and to practice is to accept the precepts. He said, these precepts you've always, you've always had from the beginning, but before you practice, you don't really know your true nature And practice is to discover your true nature by living with forms until you discover that they represent what you wanted all along. In the meantime, when you are beginning with practice, there is a lot of yes, no, yes, no. He compares this to our Zazen experience. When you practice according to the rules, You will be a good person anyway. But because you have no experience of perfect practice, you worry. You have some doubt in your practice. From the student side, it looks like a big problem. Effort and acceptance, continue or try another approach, try harder or get used to it. It looks like struggle, doubt and rules but from the Buddha or teacher side, there is no problem. So ordination ceremony is to trust Buddha or the precepts or your teacher because you cannot actually take on Buddhist practice if you don't. From Buddha's point of view, I'm not forcing anything The rules are just your own self-expression, your original rules, he may say. You may say that Buddha's teaching is the teaching of human nature, which is the way he set up the precepts. From his side, it looks like our true nature. From our side, it looks challenging. As he once described monastic practice, a snake in a bamboo tube. The reason it is no problem from Buddha's side is he accepts our practice, whether it's perfect or imperfect. That's much harder for us. So to start to trust is our way. To trust the Buddha way is how you join our order. Even though our practice is not perfect, as long as you are practicing our way, that is enlightenment itself. As you practice, you will naturally want to help others and you will continue this practice forever. Buddha knows this because he knows human nature so well and he knows that we do not. So we tend not to trust our own nature, which is why we are confused. Buddha cannot help practicing with others and helping them. He will start our practice and he will join our practice. He will practice with us always. It's not just moral code or philosophy. Buddhism is the actual way to become human how to be human and how to be Buddha, two names actually for the same thing. Because there is a big difference between Buddha's understanding of human nature and our understanding, it is quite natural for us to accept the teaching as difficult. Even for Japanese people, where to be Japanese is 95% Buddhist already, it may be easier but I still don't know which way is more difficult. We may find it easier to understand Buddhism because we are not immersed in it. We start from the beginning and have to make it ours all over again." That's Suzuki. For a great consideration of this point, I'd like to recommend a um, commencement speech by David Foster Wallace called, This is Water. You can find it online, I'm sure. That's my thought and appreciation for the morning. And um, much more interesting and fun for me would be any thoughts or questions from you.
0: Good morning, Reverend. had a couple thoughts. I just wanted to say, I appreciate you bringing up comfort and talking a bit about rules. I think um, my observation, after coming around Zen centers for a while, is um, we're, we're we don't, I don't maybe we don't talk about sort of the the way you express those enough. Um, I think there's a lot of pressure to sit in a Japanese posture, and for us chair sitting Westerners, that can be really tough and really painful and. Um, I think it even discourages people and we lose people over that and I do also think that we get a lot of people who worry and fret and sort of have tension with the rules and seeing them as rules and sort of that I guess just sort of tense situation so I appreciate the way that you talked about both of those and I still think so let's think that's something we can use some softening I think we take some of that stuff from our Japanese heritage and lineage and Um, I think it's tough to fit into an American sort of um, body and approach sometimes. I think that sometimes that could be one of the reasons we sometimes, you know, maybe lose some some people who are interested in this practice is over the posture pain and the struggle with rules and, and forms and things seeming too aggressive, I guess, or tense or something like that. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that.
1: Well, I, I certainly do because um, you know I spent 14 years uh, within the great the great conspiracy of Zen Center, San Francisco Zen Center, and uh, there were I found much to appreciate, much to resist, uh, and I was fortunate, you know, that I had at a certain point the struggles of the community. Um, And my own desire, Uh, I had been married and I had to figure out a a mode of support and raise a family. So in some sense, my Buddhist career has three phases. I could give it more definition or more color than that, but let's just say I spent the better part of 15 years at the Zen Center community, another 15 years working in the marketplace and uh, working other kinds of practice mostly 12-step practice and then return to community life in terms of buddhist community in the form of everyday zen uh, which i did for another 15 years or maybe 20 years um Not that the years make so much difference in themselves, but the perspective I think is rather interesting. When I look at Zen Center these days, which I appreciate more than ever, you know, they create a magnificent wide gate and many people find opportunities to come and practice and and, and experiment and develop and appreciate much of what uh, you know headquarters has has created, you know they're their magnificent art, their Buddha Hall, their endless programs, their wild uh, creation in terms of monastery, uh, the monastery of Tassahara and Green Gulch. But I experience, you know, and I love going to Tassajara, I try to do it every year for work periods. But when I experience a Page Street, uh, I'm reminded very much of how I felt in those years, which is a kind of exhaustion. It's just hard. And I don't know if it could be otherwise, you know, living with other people, uh, the requirements of giving up your own priorities on schedule and food and who knows what, and working for less, which is always part of practice. Uh, The austerity, you know, I appreciate the austerity, I have uh, more and more respect for the fact that it must be that way, to a degree, But I also find great comfort in practice with a smaller group of people where there's a conversation possible. You know, uh, we can have a conversation as a dozen people. Uh, Even at every day, which I like and continue to support and appreciate, um, you know, with 50 or 60 people in the room or on Zoom, it's not a conversation, it's a lecture and it's a few questions. So um, I think it's, really important to um, give people an opportunity to participate more actively. And uh, so I've always appreciated Hartford Street and the scale of Hartford Street, which seems you know, very solid to me. There's a critical mass. And despite I'm sure the many challenges of a small community, uh, I think it has traction. I think it has Lift, and uh, you know it's a it's a real temple, and I always feel appreciation and at home there. Uh, Shindo, I'm I'm struck. Are you in uh, Japan somewhere?
0: I was. Uh, <laughs> it's just a virtual background of uh, the. Oh, I clear. see.
1: Is it, which uh, which temple is it in back of you?
0: Oh, I, I forgot. But that's I okay. Cool I, I could
1: cool. never keep the name straight myself. And I saw, I saw some of the great ones. You know, we did a trip, I think, 10 years ago and visited AHAG and, you know, some of the really magnificent stuff. And, you know, when you're looking at two or 300 years of creative, genius, effort, devotion, and all that other stuff, you can see how deeply powerful, you know, practice is. And as Suzuki said in the close of uh, that talk that I referenced, uh, you know, Buddhism and Japan are inseparable and uh, it's magnificent. And also, you know, Suzuki despaired of ever finding many people to be interested in real practice. He liked to complain about the magnificent temples with no with no monks. He thought it was regrettable.
2: Thank you for your talk. Um, I I really appreciate uh, hearing about the precepts because. Um, I guess I do struggle um, with them sometimes because I, I, I do think it's because of my Catholic upbringing. The way that I relate to it is very much um, using them to punish myself. Um, and, I, and I do appreciate that there's a lot of focus on, on Dharma talks about the precepts, about um, forgiving yourself for that um, and not using the precepts in such a way but sometimes I do think that I use this, this space to not to change. Um, and I and I'm wondering if you if you have any advice for that. The precepts. Yeah, and the the fact that I do think that like how how can I use them in a way that is both encouraging but not punishing myself, you know?
1: Of course, I do know, (laughs) and it's a challenge. Of course, um, I think one of the things that helps is age. You know, when you get a little older, it's a little bit harder uh, to um, be so upset with yourself and perhaps you make fewer, you know, big blunders you still stub your toes all the time. But uh, you know, how you think about the precepts, you know, that Suzuki really, I mean, Buddhism is about freedom, but freedom is not something we just are. It's something we cultivate. Uh, You know, one of the ways he described freedom is not being, uh, how should I say, not being, in uh, how should I say, encumbered by this what he called uh, this uh, troublesome robe. In other words, you know, part of priest practice, and I'm not necessarily recommending it because there's a wide range of ways that people relate to practice, but priests take on additional encumbrance. And sometimes they say, well, I do this because I need the support. I need the forms to remind me that I really do care about this. Um, that's one way of, of uh, relating. But, you know, it's, it's not like, um, you know, precepts in a way are more like lighthouses. You know, they're reference points. An idea in the precepts, for example, one of the ways in which a precept is spoken is, do not take what is not given. That's a very powerful idea. And it was a new idea to me at some point. Uh, I mean, the idea of stealing, that's one thing, that's sort of blatant, a hard red line in a way. But just not taking what is not given is a much better way of understanding how we should be relating to how should I say not just the material world the space in a room you know there are some people for example for and I think true of many of us we we don't like an empty space you know if there's if no one's talking then maybe we feel like oh we have to talk we have to say something or we have to be entertaining have to be smart Well, that's taking over in a way. In other words, that's taking up space. And a more civilized relationship to that space would be to sort of feel out what would be helpful rather than what would, you know, rather than just being driven by your anxiety or compulsion. So it's, you know, it's just a a reference over time. And seeing their wisdom that gives them weight, you know, you don't have to feel controlled. Uh, you don't have to worry about whether you should eat meat or not. You can decide, well, I'm not going to eat meat for this year or whatever. Or, But you don't have to um, be too critical of yourself in the midst of that either. So I don't know if that's helpful. That's what occurs. Oh, uh, Mio is saying plenty time time to give it up. No, no. Uh, what, oh, or is that you just raising your hand? Yeah, I am. Oh, good. A remark, which is that
2: um, uh, in the the short while that I spent with Suzuki Oshi, one of the impressions that remains indelibly is how gentle he was. So there's that too.
1: I think it's such a powerful thing for us to encounter anyone who conveys true humility. We, we know it, we feel it in our bodies and it changes us. Uh, you know, and Buddhism is involved in trying to help us cultivate that side of ourselves. So, uh, you know, as as challenging and as exhausting as it may seem sometimes, I was fortunate. You know, in a way, when I was at Zen Center, it felt a little bit like I was forcing things. And that I'm not saying that's a mistake. But I got a chance to, you know, sort of be in a more spacious situation for a number of years, pursue my own somewhat more selfish interests. And so... <clears throat> <clears throat> when i came back to buddhism i was able to appreciate more of it i still felt the need you know to practice and to practice with others i think that's a theme more than anything else that i encounter and want to encourage i crave it in myself and i and i want to encourage it in other people you know it's fine to sit by yourself and there's much benefit Uh, to sitting under any circumstances. But sitting with other people is, I think, what reveals reveals practice to us. Because it's actually the genius of others, I think, which is the true inspiration of practice. It's their gift and our recognition of it. That is the, you know, that's the engine, you know. I don't think Eson ever told me anything. He was just, as far as I was concerned, I was all right with him. And that was a complete gift. So I didn't need it. Uh, I didn't need precepts from Eson. I, I I discovered encouragement through the way he he built his life. Uh, and he lived, he lived, you know, according to the precepts, uh, but he had a very broad, very broad sense of it. The uh, uh, wonderful story from Tassahara, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, management, the, what's called the uh, Rokachiji, the staff at Tasahara would get together after Zazen in the morning and have tea and discuss the issues of the day. And on one occasion, they're sitting around talking about, uh, I don't know, how the service should go or some chant or other. And it was really going on at great length. And Isan said, I think what we need to do is take off all our clothes and ride around in a big black car. That was his solution. And um, for many people that was helpful, a helpful idea. So uh, you never know. At any rate, you, you have a great, you, you're part of a great tradition. Well, you know, Suzuki and Isan are founders in its most pure sense. You know, people whose lives uh, have created possibility for themselves and for others. Maybe that's plenty.